Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Good morning, Central Service. How are you guys doing this morning? Hope you're having a really good morning. As David said, my name is Natalie. I'm one of the leaders here at Christchurch. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, or if you've just come for the first time, you are very, very welcome. Please do come and find me um, after the service, as I'd love to meet you and catch up with you. Um, so I hope everyone has been enjoying this great summer we've been having. Um, unprecedented uh, weather so far. I think when we have weather like this, it often puts people into two different camps. You have the people that wear shorts and flip-flops throughout the year, and so now they're just in their element. <laughs> um, and then you've got the other group where they are convinced that if it gets a degree hotter, they have noticed, like, it was 32 yesterday, and now it's 33, and I know it feels different. <laughs> Uh, but I've been doing a fair bit of traveling this summer, and I actually arrived in London last night from Paris. So on the next slide, I've got some pictures. You can see me there. Um, it was just a wonderful time. I have, I've been to Paris before, but I hadn't been in a long time, so everything felt quite new. Um, and yeah, we just had a really, really good time. Um, in fact, picture the scene. I was finalizing this talk whilst I was enjoying a lovely charcuterie board and a glass of wine in a cafe along the River Seine. I know everyone is very jealous right now. <laughs> um, and on my final day, I visited St. Chapelle. I don't know if anyone's ever been there. Um, it's a royal chapel that was built in the 13th century in accordance with the wishes of St. Louis to house relics from Passion of the Christ. Um, and it's just, as you can see there, it's a stunning, stunning building. And the upper chapel contains 15 stained glass windows with 1,113 scenes that depict the story of mankind from Genesis right through to the resurrection of Christ. It's just amazing. Um, and I took the picture on the right whilst I was there. And who can guess? what um, window, what book that represents from the Bible. Yeah, well done, guys. It wasn't that hard. Um, <laughs> yes, it's the book of Esther, which, funny enough, is the series that we're looking at. What a coincidence. <laughs> so we are continuing our series on the book of Esther, which Sarah, Sarah brilliantly kicked off for us last week. And growing up in church, because I was like a church kid, there were three books that, as a young person, you're always encouraged to read. And that was Esther, Ruth, and Daniel. Three young people in the Bible, and you're told, read these books and like look up to these Bible figures and try and model the lives that they led. But as a 14-year-old, I've got to be honest, their stories weren't that appealing. I didn't really want to work in barley fields all day. I just, I felt like I had options. I was corrected by Peter. who said that he does know some people who have worked in barley fields. That's not to say you can't do that, guys. But for me, it just, it just, just wasn't working for me. I didn't want to join a king's harem. Like, surely there is, there's better prospects. And spending the night in a lion's den, no. I think we have to say that's a no from me. Um... 
But I think like the above um, scenario, what I've just described, is often what happens to people when they try and engage with the Old Testament because they look at the specifics of the characters and then they decide, well, I can't relate to this because I don't live in a world where these things happen anymore. So how can this be relevant to me? But if you take a step back and you just look at the general context of these stories, you can see how relevant they really are. As we're looking at the book of Esther, Esther lived in exile. She was displaced and ruled by a nation that worshipped kings and idols instead of the God that she worshipped. And in many ways, I imagine that God must have felt very far in those times. And today, we too live in a world that worships its own form of idols instead of God. And it can also feel as if God is very far away. So therefore, as we study this book and other books in the Old Testament, we need to look for the overarching principles that show us how to live as faithful followers of God in an often faithless society. So with that said, here's a recap from last week. If you weren't here or you're not familiar with the book of Esther. So we're looking at around 479 BC and the people of Israel are under Persian rule. So some of them have actually returned to their homeland because of the decree of King Cyrus to rebuild the Jewish temple. Some people have gone back, but others have remained. And Esther and her cousin Mordecai are among those that have remained. King Xerxes is on the throne. And after banishing his former queen Vashti, he holds his own version of the bachelor and summons all the virgins in the kingdom to present themselves in order to find a new queen. And with the help of Mordecai and the king's eunuch Hegai, Esther impresses the king and is chosen as queen. And then Mordecai actually overhears a plot at the king's gate to assassinate the king. And he tells Esther, who then goes on to tell the king and saves his life. And then we reach our passage for today. It's quite chunky, so bear with me, okay? After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, the pure, that is, the lot, 
was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. So the king took his signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to attend her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to, to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. 
When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Okay, are you still with me? I know that was a bit long. (laughs) Um, So today, we are going to not look so much on Esther's actions, even though they're very significant, but we're going to look at the person of Mordecai because he does play a significant part in the story of Esther. And I also believe that he sets a great example of what it means to be a faithful follower of God in a faithless society. So in true preacher form, we're going to be looking at three S's. We're going to look at how to, we should say no, when we have to speak out, and when we have to stir up. So firstly, let's talk about saying no. We learn that Haman is honored by the king and is given a very senior position in the kingdom. However, It doesn't look like he's the sort of man who should be honored in the first place. I mean, talk about over-exaggeration. One person doesn't bow to you, and then you decide, you know what, I'll kill them all. I'll wipe out an entire nation. It's very insecure. Um, And he's even willing to offer the king a form of bribe in order to make it happen. I read someone, I don't know how accurate it is, but that the amount of silver that he was offering to King Xerxes today would come to around $25 million. It's not a joke. He's putting everything on the line. Um, He lacks any kind of integrity whatsoever. But when Mordecai is expected to bow to this man, he refuses to do so. Now, it's helpful to understand the history between the two men, something that the original readers, the Jewish readers, would have picked up on, but maybe we may not have made those connections. You see, you might have noticed that the passage sometimes refers to Haman as the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha. If you were to trace the family lineage back, you would find out that Haman was a descendant of the Amalekites. And the Amalekites were one of Israel's arch enemies. If you go back into the book of Exodus, you will see that the Amalekites attacked Israel unprovoked when they were leaving Egypt and traveling in the wilderness. And you might recall the story, I've got a picture here of Moses, when he raises up his hands when they're having the battle. And anytime Moses' hands are raised, Israel are successful. And then he relies on um, Aaron and Joshua to hold up his hands so that Israel can be successful in battle. We fast forward now to 1 Samuel 15, we're introduced to King Saul. This is Israel's first king, and he is from the tribe of Benjamin. Um, And he's at war with the Amalekites, and God instructs Saul. At this point, it's useful to know that Saul has had a track record of not listening to what God has to say. Um, And so at this point, God instructs Saul and says, you must not spare anything, that this is what has resulted on the Amalekites because of their unprovoked attack. However, Saul doesn't listen to God's instructions. He spares the Amalekite king Agag and the best of his spoil. Now, I want you to understand that this is not some sort of act of mercy. That's not why King Saul is doing this. It's more because he wants to present some form of trophy to God. Look, God, look how impressive I am. I managed to capture the king alive and I can show that to you. But God's not impressed because King Saul once again 
disobeys God's commands. God is looking for a king to lead his people who will obey what he says, who will model what it means to follow God and to follow his commandments. And so God rejects Saul as Israel's king. That is the final straw for him. So when we fast forward again now, we have Haman, who is an Agagite. So what does that mean? It means he's a descendant of King Agag, who was spared. Versus Mordecai, who, guess what, happens to be a Benjaminite and actually a direct descendant of King Saul. So in many ways, it looks like a grudge match between the two men. And there are some debate between scholars as to whether Mordecai refused to bow because of religious reasons, because thou shalt not have any other gods before me. Or maybe it was because he knew that Haman was an Amalekite. And as a Jew, there was no way he was going to submit to that. Or it could just be because Haman was a man that lacked integrity. And why should such a man be honored? But either way, Mordecai chooses to say no. And as followers of Jesus, we have to understand that we will have moments where we have to say no. And if we're being honest, that probably feels like most of the time in these days. And that's because we live in a culture that loves to say, yes, if you want to do something, do it. If you want to try something out, try it. Nothing is off limits. We're told to live out our truth, even if it's destructive and confusing. We're told to chase our desires, even at the expense of others. Like we live in a culture where there are now websites that people can go on to find other people to have affairs with. It sounds nonsensical, but this is the harsh reality of the world today. Um, and we are told to follow our hearts, even though Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick and cannot be understood. But to listen to God's voice above our own and many others out there will often mean denying ourselves and saying no. Now, not only is saying no in and of itself countercultural, but it's even more countercultural to say no because of our surrender to God's will. Because there are some people who deny themselves in many ways. There are some people who practice celibacy for no religious reason other than they believe it helps them in, in body and spirit and mind. There are some people who might say no to certain diets because they believe ethically it's not right to do so. There are some people who deny themselves luxuries and pleasures of the body in order to um, become fit. But whilst I'm sure there's lots of benefits to all of these, they're just outside of a heart that says yes to God. In and of itself, you're just worshipping self. You're just trying to make yourself a better person. But as followers of Jesus, we're not focused just on that. We're doing these things because we're saying yes to God, because we're surrendering ourselves to him. And that is countercultural. But we have to understand that in our saying no, we will face challenges from people around us. We see that Mordecai was questioned by the royal officials for his actions day after day. They bring their complaints to Haman and say, you know, what, what are you going to do about this? What's to be done about this man who won't bow down to you? Haman goes to the king and says, look at these Jews. Like they don't follow the customs of our land. They're separate from us. They're not doing the things that we do. And as a follower of Jesus, we will experience that as well. Your chance to say no will mean standing out and potentially being called out. 
Now, when I was at university, I was part of the Christian Union. Um, I joined because I gave my life to Christ just before university. And I was like, if I don't join the Christian Union and find Christian friends, I don't know what's going to happen to me at uni. So I joined the Christian Union. And obviously, being part of a society like that puts your faith on display. People know, okay, she's serious, like she's a Christian. Um, but that often means that you will get challenged by people. And I did come across a few people who liked to challenge me on why I believed in Jesus. There was a girl in particular on my course who used to give me a hard time all the time about this. Um, she said that she was an atheist, but I like to refer to her as a no way theist. Um, and what I mean by that is it's not that she just didn't believe in God, but she was like, there's no way a God like that exists. Like, I, I'm, even if there was the possibility that he does this exist, I will never believe in him. That's just how strongly she felt about it. And I think in particular, it was the Christian God, because there were other people on our course from other faiths, but they never got a hard time like I did. <laughs> and I remember once, like, so I studied law and we had an aura exam. Um, where basically you had to like make a bail application. And if anybody is like a solicitor or familiar with like studying a law degree, you all know that that is quite scary because they make the experience like judges don't care about you and they don't have time for you. So we were all quite nervous. And as we're standing in the queue to go in, she comes up to me, she's like, you know, I read Genesis 22 about Abraham and Isaac and what kind of God would tell Abraham to sacrifice his own child. Like, it's disgusting. What are your thoughts on that? And I was just thinking, Lord, I don't know why you're allowing this to happen to me five minutes before my exam. Um, and I probably gave a really bad answer at the time. And then I went into my exam and it was all very stressful. And I came out and I burst into tears because it was just all too much. Um, but it's just an example of some of the things I experienced. We also had the Humanist Society who would constantly troll our page on Facebook. Every event, every post we ever wrote, even just to say, hey guys, we're going to have like hangouts after class in the courtyard. Like they had something to say, like this is how Galileo would have felt in his time or something like that. Um, <laughs> and so my point is that you will face challenge. You will have people that you will rub the wrong way because you're choosing to stand for what you believe in. But on the other hand, one of the positive experiences was that a classmate of mine who was like a nominal Christian at the time, she gave her life to Christ in the third year of our course. And she mentioned to me that part of the reason why she did so was because I was the first Christian she'd seen who actually tried to live by what I claimed to believe. And so even though you might be challenged, be encouraged that you'll also be part of drawing people to Jesus. Authenticity draws people to him. So secondly, um, speaking out. When Mordecai discovered Haman's plot and the king's decree to wipe out the Jews, he publicly mourned at the king's gate. The equivalent of that is maybe someone just pitching a tent outside Buckingham Palace and just staying there every day for weeks on end, just wailing and crying day and night. What a spectacle that would have been. But Mordecai refused to stay silent or to be comforted in the face of persecution and injustice. Now, in more recent years, we've seen the power of the global protest where because of advances in technology and social media, it means that where there are local acts of injustice, they often 
get given an international platform. One example of this is obviously um, the protests in 2020 after um, the killing of George Floyd. Um, that you know that really disturbing video spread globally, and it meant that loads of protests were sparked across the world against racism, colonialism, and state violence. However, as Christians, we also need to be willing to talk about instances of injustice that aren't always trending. And I think the persecuted church is one example of this, something that we often don't think about. I guess in the West, we find it hard to relate to, but it's really important because we have so much freedom. Like We can come here at LSE every Sunday and we can publicly worship God without fear of our lives. We can open up the Bible and affirm that it's the living word of God. But for many Christians around the world, they can't do that without being fearful for their lives. Um, just a couple of stats for you from the charity Open Doors. Uh, they've said that this year, over 360 million Christians are living in places where they're experiencing high levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,898 Christians were killed for their faith. 5,110 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. 4,765 believers were detained without trial, arrest, sentence, or imprisoned. And 3,829 believers were abducted for faith-related reasons. Now, Open Doors are just, a, I think they're an amazing charity that are dedicated to raising awareness on this issue and strengthening those believers who are in danger of because of following Jesus. I once participated in a blackout weekend. Um, what that entailed was that I spent 48 hours in my room without any contact with the outside world. No technology, no entertainment, not speaking to anyone I live with. I basically just had a Bible, some water and some bread. Um, it, it might be quite dramatic, but that's how I chose to um, do that and to raise money for open doors. And even though, you know, what I experienced, although it was tough for me, it pales in comparison to what the persecuted church experiences on a day-to-day. -day. But it still gave me a glimpse of the suffering that they experienced. And whilst we have the freedom to speak openly, then these are the people that we should be speaking more about. This is some of the things that we should be pointing towards as followers of Jesus and letting people know that this is wrong. Um, but sometimes speaking out also means saying something completely different to everyone else. I think if we did more to raise awareness about Christian persecution, the majority of the world would be on our side. They say, no, it's completely wrong that people cannot practice their faith without being afraid for their lives. We can totally understand that. But what about when we're engaged in more complex arguments, ones that are extremely polarized? I'm going to say it. What about Roe versus Wade, for example? Now, I can see people getting really scared, being like, she's going to go there. It's like Will Smith at the Oscars. She's going to talk about it. But no, I'm not going to go into details of that because the point I'm making is not this is the side you should be on. I personally believe as Christians who serve a God that values all life, that our response is actually a lot more measured and, and nuanced than maybe just picking one side or the other. Um, even though we have convictions, I think we should really think about that um, in much greater detail than two minutes in this talk. 
But the point I'm making is that what if our perspective is a refreshing alternative to either narrative? What if we choose to speak out by responding differently to everyone else? Um, I follow an Instagram account called Salt and Gold, uh, and they recently created this foot washing series. Um, so as you can see, there's Jesus, and he's washing the feet of people on both sides of the protest. Um, now, the series isn't more profound than this. It's basically, this is one example, but it's got other examples of people on different sides of, of a debate, and Jesus is washing their feet. But it really made me stop and think. And I just found it so refreshing that in the midst of this kind of debate, that there was something like this that actually reminds us that Jesus loves both sides, that he has forgiveness and healing and restoration and justice for both, that he wants to serve both, and that he wants to display his lavish love to both sides. What if as Christians, that was our response? What if we said, rather than trying to pick a side, we just brought people with the gospel? What if we said that God does care very deeply about these issues, and that by getting to know who Jesus is, by inviting them to have a relationship with him, that that could actually transform everything. What if that's our way of speaking out? Maybe it's about meeting both sides who are hurting and frustrated and meeting them with the gospel of Jesus, meeting them with that well of living water that will never run out. Now, when Esther hears about Mordecai at the king's gate, she becomes really distressed and she tries to send him clothes to come out of his sackcloth and ashes. But Mordecai refuses to do so. Now, it's likely that Esther wouldn't have been aware of the king's decree. It's not to say that where she was in the palace, that she would have been involved in any of the king's affairs like that. So she would have had no idea in the safety of her palace. She had no idea of the injustice that was taking place against her own people. And I think that sometimes we can be like that as well because we get caught up in the busyness of life, especially in a city like London, where it's all about getting ahead and going from one thing to the next, going up the next rung of the ladder. But I think that that can make us blissfully unaware to the um, evil and injustice around us as well. Uh, quoting from a commentary I used for this talk by Warren W. Wiersbe, it says, we see here two kinds of saints, those who are in joy because they are ignorant of what is going on, and those who are in sorrow because they know the signs of the times. Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, we need to go around being really melancholic and just upset all the time at the state of the world. Like God does call us to have joy in our hearts. But the way the world is now should make us uncomfortable. We shouldn't just be comfortable with our surroundings. It should make us want to speak out. It should make us want to say, no, there is a different way of living. I remember once I went to a wedding with a couple of friends and me and the friends were like the only non-white people in the room. And a family member stood up to make a speech and it became quite obvious that there were quite a few microaggressions in the speech that we picked up on and it made us feel very uncomfortable. But everyone else around us was just very oblivious to that fact that actually 
this wasn't quite funny for a few people in the room. Now, that is an issue in and of itself that we're not going to dive into today. But the point I'm making is that we felt uncomfortable. We couldn't sit there and just sort of go along with everyone else and laugh and think, this is normal. And as Christians, we shouldn't be able to stay in this world either and just go along with everything and feel really comfortable and think like, yeah, the world is meant to be like this. The world is not meant to be like this, ladies and gentlemen. This is not God's plan for how society should be. This is not God's plan for how culture should be. And as Christians, we should feel uncomfortable, uncomfortable enough to say, no, I'm not going to be silent. I'm not going to conform. I'm going to speak out and I'm going to say that there is a different way of living. Amen. <laughs> Finally, uh, Mordecai shows us how to stir up. Hopefully what I'm saying is stirring you up this morning. Um, Mordecai stirs Esther to act in spite of her fear. When he informs her of the king's decree, she raises a very fair point about being in danger. This is not to be downplayed because if she approached the king, as she said, um, there was a rule that she would be put to death unless the king extended mercy to her. And she hadn't been called by the king in over a month. Maybe he was busy with governing his kingdom. Maybe her novelty and charm had worn off at this point. We don't know. All we know is that it would have been a very risky move for her to make. But just look at how Mordecai responds. Firstly, he is certain that God is going to act and deliver the Jews with or without Esther. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Mordecai is relying on God's track record. The fact that he has been with the Israelites up, to, up until this point, he has remained faithful to them. He has never broken his covenant with them. Even when they have disobeyed him and turned their backs on him. He has always been there for them. Mordecai knows this, and so he is certain that even if Esther doesn't do anything, God is going to deliver them somehow. Now, I came across a tweet the other day by a Christian televangelist, and obviously I'm not going to say who it was, um, but the tweet was, God can't get it done if you won't let him. I'm here to tell you that God can certainly get it done without you. I'm sorry, but that is the truth. Um, again, I'm not, like Sarah did last week, I'm not going to get into some big debate about predestination and God's sovereignty and our free will this morning, only to note that God's sovereignty and our free will coexist in the mystery that is God's plan. But that goes on to Mordecai's next point. What if God has called us to a particular moment to act, just like Esther? What if God wants us to be part of his saving plan? He doesn't need us specifically to act in order for him to do something, but he wants us to join in the joy and the triumph that we experience when we see that he has done something through us. Now, let me tell you, it is possible to miss your moments sometimes. It's possible to... Feel the promptings of the Holy Spirit and not act. And I'm sure many people can relate to that. Uh, a couple months back, I was on the DLR um, and I was going home and a lady came onto the train and she was clearly very upset. She was crying. I'd seen like marks on her arms to suggest maybe she might have been a drug user. And like she was just in great distress. And I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me and saying, you need to go and pray for this woman. 
And I was like, Holy Spirit, I'm on the DLR and people will be watching me. <laughs> like I was afraid. I didn't want to do it. And it took me ages. And finally, when I got the resolve and I was like, okay, I'm going to go over there and I'm going to pray, she got off the train. And I felt so disappointed that moment because I knew that God was speaking to me and telling me to speak to that woman. And I just didn't. Um, and if you've ever been there, I want to say that there is grace for you. Don't live in the disappointment and shame perpetually. Like, that's not God's plan. That's not God's will. God's not here to make us feel bad because we didn't listen in those moments. But I want to encourage you that God will get it done. Like, after that lady left, I prayed and I said, Lord, I know you're going to speak to her. Even if it's not through me, you're going to speak to her. And I was confident of that. And we should be confident that, that God will do that also. But I do believe that there are moments that God has made us for where we can share in that joy and triumph of his faithfulness towards us. Some of us might be like Esther. We might be in high positions where when we do walk forward and act, we're influencing people on, in higher levels. Um, but then some of us might be like Mordecai, where actually we're just having a conversation with that person who's then going to move and influence people on higher levels. It might be really unmillennial to say that we're not all going to be a CEO, but we're not all going to be a CEO. Um, that is the reality of life. But I don't also believe that we're all called to be CEOs. And I don't believe that God doesn't work through those who are on the front lines, on the ground, um, stirring up other people who might go on to be in those positions. For example, there'll be many people who will know John and Charles Wesley. They founded the Methodist Church of Great Britain, Christian denomination that was dedicated to missionary pursuits and it helped to spread the gospel throughout the world. But there'll be lots of people who won't be familiar with Susanna Wesley, their mother, who never preached a sermon, she never wrote a book, she never founded a church, but she inspired her two sons by walking faithfully with God, despite their home circumstances. Either way, as Ephesians 2.10 states, we are God's workmanship. We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're coming to land now, um, and I'm going to give some application. How are we to say no and speak out and stir up others as followers of Jesus? Where do we start? I've made it really simple. I only have two bullet points. Um, the first one is to just abide in God, to just know God. It might sound really basic, but it's fundamental. You cannot stand for any person that you don't know. You can't stand for God if you don't know who he is. If you are not fueling your relationship with God with prayer, reading the Bible, worshipping privately and coming to church with other believers, if you're not doing that on a regular basis, then all the efforts you try and do to speak out, to say no and to stir up others, they'll fall flat because they will lack the power of the Holy Spirit and will easily fall away. Um, when I was a teenager, purity rings were all the rage. You, there were so many celebrities in the press that would wear purity rings. And I'm not dissing purity rings, but um, you'll see where I'm going with this. Um, and a lot of these celebrities as well, funny enough, were from the Disney Channel. I don't really know why. Um, 
But they would talk about how they were saving themselves for marriage, so they would wear these rings. And one music artist in particular, she'd been very vocal about this. Like she'd literally given speeches in award ceremonies talking about why she would be wearing this ring and how like, it separated her from everything else that was going on in society. And I really admired her courage and her bravery to stand up for what she believed in. But then a few years later, I watched her in another interview, um, and she was now in a relationship with another music artist. And she explained she was no longer wearing the ring. Um, and to paraphrase her own words, she said she had been following a conviction set in her by her mother that just didn't match up to what she believed anymore. She was a grown up now, and so her beliefs had changed. Now, I'm not here to critique whether she had a genuine faith in God, and that's what um, convinced her to wear the ring in the first place. But what I'm saying is her convictions were not rooted in God and they easily fell away. When you're trying to do these things for other people, when you're trying to do these things to save face, there will come a point where your legs will be cut off from you because you need that foundation. We just sung about it. You know, I will build my life upon your love. It's a firm foundation. Whatever we do, it has to be rooted in God. And to be rooted in God, you have to know him. You have to develop your relationship with him. Being fueled by genuine love for him and not for the need to be righteous in your own eyes or in the eyes of others is the key. Mordecai was able to do the things he did because he was so certain about the God that he believed in. And he was certain about him because he knew who he was. Secondly, as we abide in God, as we draw closer to him, we have to pray for opportunities. Now, this, is, this can be a bit scary because if you pray for opportunities, God's going to send your opportunities your way. Believe me. Anytime I've prayed, Lord, I just want to share the gospel with people. Someone's like, so tell me about the gospel. And I'm like, whoa, Lord. <laughs> or if I'm praying, Lord, just give me patience. And you just get some really, really people just getting on your nerves. And you're like, okay, Lord, I see what you did there. Um, but we need to be brave to pray for opportunities to do all these things that God's calling us to do. And he will answer that. Ask him to provide those good works for you. Ask him to show you ways in which you can say no and be an example of a faithful follower of Jesus. Ways that you can speak out and cause people to realize that there is a better way of living in this world. And ways that you can stir up other people to, to act and to do the things that God is calling them into as well. Um, if I'd like to invite the band to come back up. We're just going to round this off um, just with a time of prayer. Uh, I think we were talking in the briefing earlier, and I know that on the heart of the worship team this morning has been surrender. And I think that is like our first step, and it is part of abiding in God. It's surrendering to him. It's surrendering to his will. It's to say, Lord, I want to be used by you. I want to do the good works that you have planned for me. I want to have the confidence to say no, to speak out and to stir up others. And, and I'm willing. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be this really extroverted Christian that like, you know, has all the right things to say. I know often some people can feel like, that's not me. I'm not the kind of person who can stand on stage. I'm not the kind of person who can just go and talk to strangers. You don't have to do that. Um, as David shared, actually acknowledging our frailty and realizing that we need God is the first step. So um, if we'd like to stand, I'm going to pray for us. 
um, a prayer of surrender. And as we worship, let's just draw our hearts to Jesus. Let's give him all of us. Let's not hold anything back. There is great joy and beauty and excitement when we lay down our lives for Jesus. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the God that you are. I thank you that we can be so certain of your faithfulness towards us. I thank you that because of your son, Jesus, you have given us a better way of living. You have given us a hope and a future. And Jesus, we want to be the kind of people that lay our lives down for you. We want to have the confidence that Mordecai had to say no to the things of this world to speak out against injustice and persecution and evil and to stir up others around us to do the same. But we understand that it starts with us laying ourselves down. So we give you our hearts, we give you our minds, we give you our desires and we surrender them to you. We pray against fear we pray against shame that's holding us back. We recognize that it's your Holy Spirit that empowers us and equips us. It's not in our strength, but it all comes from you. All we do is we come here this morning and we say, use us, Lord. Holy Spirit, fill us. We surrender to you this morning. worship together.